Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes, today's Clark Rage is about this. Why, if the economy is so intensely strong, why are people's wages overall not even keeping up with inflation? I'll give you one theory why we are still not getting ahead. And later yet, you know that vehicle maybe you have in your driveway, you're getting tired of? I'm going to give you new ammunition to keep driving what you already have and not get that new shiny thing. I, for years, have referred to the debit card is the piece of trash, fake Visa or fake MasterCard. They are so dangerous to your wallet. And I've said that over the years, even though I'll have people say, wait, wait, I talked to the people at my bank. They said that you were wrong, Clark, that the debit card is just the same as a credit card. It's not. And the people at the bank that tell you that may just be misinformed. Let's go with that. The reason that I trash the piece of trash fake Visa and fake MasterCard so much is the cynical banks use their extreme lobbying power in the Congress to prevent having consumer protections on debit cards like a credit card. They may look the same, but they work completely differently. I have in my hands an article from the Cleveland Plain Dealer where their consumer reporter is writing a story about someone who lost everything they had in their bank account plus more because they weren't closely checking their checking account statement. A criminal had duplicated their card. They had possession of their debit card. A criminal had duplicated it and emptied the whole account. And because they didn't notice quick enough, they lost all the money in their account, plus were responsible for the overdraft fees generated by the actual perpetrator of the crime. And the bank, which is not one of the nation's giant monster megas, it's a regional bank, which was a super regional, a pretty large bank that's a household name in the Midwest, told the customer to go soak her head. The law is the law, the rules are the rules. With a credit card, she would have had full protection against that criminal activity. But with a debit card, the rules are so narrow and the money you're exposed to so extreme. And believe it or not, with a debit card, if you don't notice in a timely basis that money has disappeared from your account, you lose all the money in your account plus whatever overdrafts it would generate. Or if you have set up a line of credit, you're responsible for that too. So if in your life you're worried that if you have a credit card, 
you're going to mess up and overdraw it, not overdraw it, you're going to charge things on it that you can't afford to pay, and that's why you use a debit card. That's why you should look at using debitize or debits. Don't worry about writing them down. I have an explanation of both of them on Clark.com where you can use these methods, they're apps you have on your phone, where it treats a credit card kind of like a debit card by making payments as necessary, pretty much like a debit card would, but you have all the protections you'd have with a credit card. Let's say you have no credit or bad credit. You can't get a credit card. So the debit card is what your option is. Simple. Have two accounts. And by the way, that was a suggestion by Teresa Murray, the consumer writer, one of the last remaining ones with a major city newspaper in the country, somebody who's a consumer finance columnist. It's exactly what I'm about to tell you about the two accounts, something you may have heard me suggest for years, that if you do want to have a debit card, you have your main account where your main money is, where you pay your bills from, where you pay your rent or mortgage from, where you make your car payment from. Then you have a separate account, not at the same financial institution, where you have that with a debit card, and you only have walking around money in that account. Only what you're going to need to be able to handle what you do day to day on a debit card. So the real money you need to pay your real bills and all that is in the other account, and that way you've shielded off the money you got to have from criminal behavior or any other odd circumstance that would cause the money to disappear. Now, all this brings full circle something you hear me talk about way too often, probably, and that's how important it is when your statements come home that you open them up and go through them and make sure that everything looks legit, and if something doesn't, you question it. Because you sit on your hands, you lose your rights, and the banks don't care, and that's not right at all. Kennedy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Kennedy. Hello, how are you today? Great, thank you, Kennedy. Now, you want to talk about establishing credit. Yes. Let's see if I can help. Okay, so I'm 19. I don't have any credit history as of yet, and I was wondering what the best way to do that was. I had looked into um, secured cards, but I read that you thought there was a better way to do that. So I was just wanting to get your opinion on it. Yeah, so the problem with secured cards and the reason they're the last resort is that secured cards tend to charge a lot of fees. Mm -hmm. And you have a, a period of time that will take you typically as long as 18 months in order to go from it being a secured card to a regular card right so i want to give you an alternative answer and then i'm going to go with my traditional answer there is a new thing called the pedal card which i talked about once before p-e-t-a-l card.com mm -hmm. that is a credit card 
that does not require a credit score. They determine based on other methods whether or not, even though you don't have credit history, whether or not they think you're credit worthy and will issue you a card. Okay. Don't know how it'll work over time. We'll see. But uh, you would be a bit of a guinea pig because right now it's only in beta testing. Oh, okay. So that would be one idea that is something you could check out. And remember, since it's new, I can't tell you that it's going to be great or not. You would be uh, being a tester for your fellow listener. Gotcha. Now, the traditional thing that I want you to, to look at doing, though, is joining a credit union. You know, a credit union's different than a bank in that it's owned by the people who join the credit union. And so credit unions are there to serve you as a member. And uh, a majority of credit unions, I'd say most but not all, offer um, what are known as fresh start programs where for you just getting credit or if you had been a different kind of person, you'd had a history of credit problems, they have this program that they don't necessarily call it fresh start. It's what the industry term is for it, where they will allow you to have a small limit Visa or MasterCard that's a regular old Visa or MasterCard. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do with the credit union is you join it and you have some money that you post in a savings account with them. But the credit card, the Visa or MasterCard you have will be like any other Visa or MasterCard. Okay. Now, Kennedy, are you in college? I am. So the other thing is college students can have a college student credit card. Are you a full-time or part-time student? Part-time. So it depends on the card issuer if they will issue to you as a part-timer. A credit card company is not supposed to solicit you till your 21st birthday, but you can go apply for a college student card. And the one that seems to be the most aggressive right now is the D Discover Card student card program. So if you went to the Discover Card website, look for information on the student credit card, and gosh, maybe you just apply for that. Okay. Is that enough to keep you busy? I gave you all yes, kinds definitely. of things to try. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure, you probably thought I was just going to give you one little answer and say, go do <laughs> this and you'll be set, Kennedy. But no, that's better. not how I roll. It's got to be <laughs> a whole bunch of things to see which one works best for you. And best of luck to you in school. Thank you so much. Sure. Ian is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ian. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Sure, Ian. You got a question for me about something I am thrilled you already own. What is that? It is uh, renter's insurance. Well, that makes you my hero, you know? Because <laughs> most people won't get renter's insurance. Somehow they think their landlord is responsible for what happens to their stuff, and mm -hmm. they're not. How can I help? Because you've already done 90% of what you should just by having a renter's insurance policy. Yeah, so I got it about a year ago, and um, recently I moved in um, with my girlfriend, and it's to my understanding it's better if we both have separate policies. 
Um, so she has her policy and I have my policy through a major um, insurance company. Um, but I was trying to research and I couldn't find out if the policy that I bought, if it would cover me in case something serious were to happen. Okay. So uh, let's first talk about the idea of having a separate one since you're living with your girlfriend. Are you both on the lease or do you have some kind of lease agreement with her? We are both listed on the lease. If you're both listed on the lease, there's not a reason I know unless there's a specific issue under state insurance law in the state you're renting in that would require that you have separate policies. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. You, uh, and, and again, I've not heard of such an exception. It would make sense normally for you to have one policy with both of you as the named insureds so that you're never in a position where one insurer says, well, that's not really under our policy, so we're not going to pay. And then the other says, no, we're not going to pay because we think that should be against the other. You should have one policy that's for both of you. Okay, so Since you're both we on the lease, to... you have that, yeah. and, you, and you buy just, you know, renter's insurance is really cheap mm-hmm. relative to most any other kind of insurance, probably costing you $15, $20 a month, somewhere in there. Uh, and even less, I, I have a Liberty, uh, through Liberty Mutual, and it's 110 for the whole year. That's fantastic. Just make sure the mm-hmm. coverage limits are enough for the possessions that both of you have and that is really great news that you have done that and you have that coverage and just have a policy that both of you are named insureds and you should be good to go. Today's Clark Rageous moment is about something that has frustrated me for years and years and years. Why is it that in a time that it's getting harder and harder for employers to find workers, wages are still staying stubbornly low. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. There's something that absolutely disgusts me, and it's known as a covenant not to compete, where employers, in order to have us work for them, make us sign this thing where we can't go work for anybody else in our chosen profession for whatever period of time is legal in whatever state it is. state of Massachusetts is rolling back its covenants not to compete because it's clear that industry in Massachusetts has not been nearly as dynamic in the tech field as it has been in states that have done away with covenants. And employers are in a position in most states where they get you to sign one of these covenants where you can't go work for anybody else. They have their thumb on you. Even if they dump you, you can't go work for anybody else for a period of time, can't earn a living, even when they don't want you anymore. Financial Times of London reports today that one in four American workers now, one in four are in covenants not to compete. And this is something as national policy. If we want to do something for the American people and allow people to earn a decent wage, 
we will eliminate employers' ability, except maybe in the executive suite, to require anybody to sign covenants not to compete. Remember that ridiculous thing where Jimmy John's, the sandwich shop, was having sandwich delivery people sign a covenant not to compete, that they couldn't go deliver sandwiches for anybody else? I mean, this is insane stuff. And we should be able to take our skills to the highest bidder, wherever that takes us, in the marketplace. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. It's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. We're going to talk right now about you ripping yourself off. You know how I talk about driving a vehicle till the wheels fall off? That you drive that vehicle as long as you possibly can. You buy new, try to keep that thing going for a decade. The average age of a vehicle on the road today is almost 12 years. I mean, vehicles are so much more reliable than they used to be. And they cost a fortune when you buy new. More about that in a second. But most of us dump a vehicle before it's anywhere near the end of its useful life. A car uh, sales manager at a car dealership was talking to me recently about the issue that he faces day after day with people coming in with a vehicle that's just a few years old and they're upside down in their loan owing on the vehicle more than what it's worth and they're bored with it and they want new wheels. And he was saying, uh, we have to do all kinds of things. How do you feel about me doing this, that, or the other? I said, well, you handle the mathematics however you want. You be a magician however you can. But if that person called me and asked me what they should do being upside down in a vehicle, I would tell them just to keep driving that vehicle and not make things worse on themselves financially by dumping a vehicle that they owe more on than what it's worth. It's pretty simple. The longer you drive a vehicle, the less that vehicle costs you. And I have new proof, a report just released from AAA on what it costs to operate the average new vehicle per year. It's all the costs added in together. For the average driver, and by the way, inquiring minds want to know, how many miles is the average new vehicle driven in a year? This isn't how many miles you may drive total in a year because you may have more than one vehicle in a household or whatever, but the average new vehicle is driven, according to AAA, 10,841 miles each year. So like 900, is that 900 miles a month, I guess? So what's it cost to operate that vehicle in the average place per year? $10,049, which is just a whisker under a dollar a mile. Now what's really interesting about that when consumer when I'm sorry not consumer reports when AAA does their overall cost of vehicle ownership it's more in the range of 
around 60 cents. But when they take new vehicles, put that in the equation, and every last expense involved with it, even the parking you pay for at various places over the course of a year, if you have to go places you pay for parking, you end up at over $10,000. New vehicles cost a fortune. And think about it if you, instead of driving a new vehicle, that one that's out there that you're tired of but it still works just fine and you're treating it so bad, why don't you go pay somebody to detail it? Make it look brand new again on the inside. Make it feel like a new vehicle to you again. And keep driving that thing instead of spending all that money on those new wheels. Because you know it's like being on a hamster wheel, right? Because as soon as you get that new vehicle in just a few months, it's not so new anymore either, is it? Brian's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Hi, Clark. My wife has been driving the same car for 22 years. 22? Okay, how did you end up coming right here right now to talk about me trying to get people to keep a car 10 years or longer and your wife runs a vehicle for 22 years? What lasted? That's right. What lasted 22 years, Brian? What it kind of car? It is a Toyota Camry. A Toyota Camry. And how much in terms of repairs and things like that, anything major like that other people would have said, I don't have the stomach for fixing this, I'm going to bail. Anything like major happen over those 22 years? It's been a great car. We love it. And we're thinking about getting another one now. It's the same transmission, same engine. It's been a great car. Fantastic. Well, that, that is a great story to hear. Well, yeah. how, can, how can I be of help? Because it sounds like you're the one who should be leading other people here, or your wife should be. <laughs> well, so we're looking for another car, um, probably another Toyota Camry. And um, I would consider buying used, but the hurricane was here a year ago. What hurricane was it? Uh, let's see, Irma. Irma? Was and, last um, year in Florida? That, yeah. I'm concerned that there were cars that were flooded and maybe someone got their car repaired themselves and that information never makes it to the car title and I'm going to end up with a bad car. And that could happen. And that's why, uh, you know, when I talk about checking vehicle title history, that's only one step of two major ones when you're looking at buying a used vehicle. And the other is to have the vehicle inspected by the whoever the Toyota mechanic is who's taken care of your wife's Toyota for the last 22 years. Because they'll be able to tell. They'll be able to, there'll be signs that they know to look for where they'll be able to see if a vehicle has suffered any water damage. Okay. Now we're far so enough, feel- we're, I should tell you, we're far enough away from Hurricane Irma now that it would be less likely that there would still be a flood vehicle somebody would be 
trying to pass off in the marketplace. It could happen, but it's not as much an issue as it is in the immediate six months after a major hurricane. Okay. But so you can I make another suggestion too? Yes. And that is that Toyota um, is having trouble getting people interested in buying Corollas and Camrys because the market has shifted so much to little SUVs. In fact, traditional passenger cars are now down to a third of the car market or vehicle market from being nearly two-thirds of the market just a few years ago. Because mm-hmm. if you look around, everybody's driving uh, heavily these smaller SUVs, which are basically just an SUV-looking top put on the same car platform as a passenger car may have been. So they got pretty good fuel economy and all that. But that's what people are interested in. So you may find you can buy a new Camry at a fantastic price. Yeah. And not even buy one that's a year or two old since since your wife likes to keep a vehicle for two decades. She could go ahead and get a new one potentially instead of a used and not have to worry about the flood thing. So you think I might find good prices on Camrys then, new Camrys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the sedan market is just so unloved right now. Well, I, I've been talking to dealerships, and I started with the Costco program, and um, I've been trying to negotiate lower than that, and I'm finding dealers don't really want to go lower than that. Well, that's because the Costco car buying program is such a, uh, I mean, it's the, the equivalent of the largest car dealer in the United States. And so the price that a Costco member gets through the Costco car buying program is going to be a very good price. And I'm curious, equipped as your wife wants, what kind of price are you seeing on a new Camry? On a Camry SE, the Costco price, and I have a, a, a tip that I want to pass on to you and the um, list, other listeners. A Camry SE, out the door, including taxes and all the junk fees, the Costco price is 24 2 and change. And um, so then I started talking to other dealers, and the problem that I found, I was asking for, okay, what's your best price, including your dealer fee? So finally, I started asking them, okay, the -the out-the-door fee, and they were adding on all kinds of junk. Uh So I learned that when you negotiate for a car, you have to get the -the out-the-door fee. Otherwise, they tack on all kinds of stuff Right. when you thought you had a good price. Yeah, the the Wednesday junk fee versus the Friday junk fee versus the Tuesday junk fee. Right. Versus, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's really crazy, isn't it? So, um, yeah. I, you know, I don't know, 24, are you comfortable at that or you still want to look used? I think um, we're comfortable at that. So I think because of the history of ownership and how much your wife has liked having the Camry she's already had – this one will seem completely different because technology's changed so much in two decades. I'd say, why don't you splurge and buy her the new one? Isn't that weird coming out of my mouth? Will is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Will. Hi, Clark. Will, how can I serve you? 
Um, I just had a uh, retirement investment question. Let's I see if I can help. Uh, thank you. Uh, I currently put 10% into my work 401, which doesn't offer a match, and then I put 2% into my Roth IRA. I was thinking about switching that and then maxing out the Roth IRA and then putting maybe 3% back to my work 401. And I just wanted to get your input on that idea. Okay, so explain why you're thinking of flipping it. Um, just because my work doesn't match my, uh, no match. And just in case I ever needed to pull out the principal of the Roth. Okay. Tax free. All right. That's, that's a great idea. The thing is though, make sure you do that Roth with one of the real low cost providers. Uh, it's one of your preferred ones that you talk about pretty regularly. So, and so you want to put in the amount you'll end up putting into the Roth. Is it? 5500 or how much total would you put in? I wouldn't max it every year. You would max it every year. Mm-hmm. And then do the other. Yeah, I mean, then, your employer not giving you a match makes that make perfect sense. Okay. If, and you could consider, are you married, Will? I'm not married. The only other thing I thought about doing was possibly I have student loans and just going even harder and paying those off quicker. Okay, I like that idea. If you go ahead and put into the Roth the max, and you're going to be disciplined to do that, pop the $5,500 into it, stop contributing anything to the 401k at work since there is no match, and use that 3% you would have put in there towards the student loan debt. Okay, yeah. Because you will have shown shown real discipline, saving for retirement already, and there's always this issue, you know, what should go towards savings and retirement and rainy day and what should go towards debts. But student loan debts kind of sit there like like these heavy weights on your shoulder. Uh-huh. So I like that plan. Thank you. And uh, keep saving, keep building for the future. And I should ask you, Will, how far are you away from being done with student loan debt? Uh, my... Four years for my federal, and then I refied my private to a lower rate, and I have nine years left on that. Okay. All right. Well, best to you. It's going to feel wonderful when you're done with all of those. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. Producer Joel, ask it for you. Clark William wrote in and he said, do you know of any good alternatives to using PayPal? What would you recommend? Wow, that's wide open. It You know, if you're using PayPal as a method to pay a business, that's just fine. If you're a business accepting PayPal, 
there's a lot of mixed feeling among businesses about dealing with the PayPal people with customer no service if you have any problem with your account. There is no real alternative for commerce that exists besides PayPal. They dominate that space, particularly in conjunction with eBay, even though they're separate owners now. If you're sending money to a friend or family member, though, the alternatives are Venmo, which ironically enough is owned by PayPal, or one that people really seem to like, Square Cash, and then the one that gets the highest rating from Consumer Reports is Apple Pay Cash. Apple Pay has as an element to it Apple Pay Cash, where you can send money to a friend or family member. All these are free to use. All right, Clark, Suzanne wrote in. She says, I'm 66 years old and still working full time. I want to start a Roth IRA, and I don't know how to go about it or which company to use. What should I do, Clark? All right. Well, it's great that you at 66 want to open one whenever you want to open one is wonderful. You are allowed a bonus contribution. You're allowed to put additional money in because you're past age 50. The amount you're allowed to contribute is up to $6,500 in a year. And I have certain companies that are what I call my favorite children that are really low-cost providers for you to look at. If you were 66, I don't know exactly how many more years you want to work, how soon you would draw on this money, but you could certainly look at, let's say, opening a target retirement fund inside a Roth IRA, which is where it's managed based on you retiring, let's say, in 2020 or 2025, and then the money is managed uh, overwhelmingly conservatively, knowing that you're approaching a point at which you're going to retire. If you were to look at uh, Vanguard, they would be the lowest cost provider for you to set up the Roth IRA with and fund it. All right, Clark, and Cameron wrote in and said, years ago, I had 12 different credit cards, Clark. For a long time, all I did was pay the minimum balance, and I'm happy to report to you that after many months of paying, I was able to totally pay off seven of these 12 cards. I paid a little bit each week, including at least triple the minimum on the due date, and I must say, if it was not for your show, I would not be where I am right now. My FICO score was 623, and it's 698 now. Thank you. Well, congratulations to you. It's great to hear you're on a wonderful path and about to hit the magic 700 on credit score, and you should be really, really proud of what you've accomplished. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, there's a giant team behind bringing you everything we do at Team Clark, our podcast and radio show, are produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. My TV producer is Leah Dunn. Clark.com is made possible thanks to Krista DiBiaz, James DeGal, John Crest, Theo Timu, Michael Timmerman, Craig Johnson, Beth Marcinko, Clara Bassanetto, John Jones, and Grace Del Rio. ClarkDeals.com, where you can find the best deals from around the web, is produced by Karis Brown, Laura Sayers, Sarah Jordan, and Demond Marley. You can sign up for our newsletters at Clark.com thanks to Sally McDonald and our social media gurus are Chelsea Glass and Nicole Carroll. 
Our Off-Air Advice Center is run by Lori Silverman, Sarah Mobley, and Sue Gatliff, and their team's available to serve you over 40 hours each week at 404-892-8227, and this is a free service of Team Clark. Thanks for listening. Till next time.